0: General Armstrong Custer pretended to be friendly to the Indians, but he never really listened to their pleas. The Sioux and the Cheyenne came to view Custer as their bitter enemy, and they killed him at the Battle of Little Bighorn. But when the Indian squaws went to find Custer's body, they took a sharp awl and they pierced countless holes in his ears. They believed that the holes would help him listen better in the (laughs) afterworld. And this Indian myth reflects a biblical truth. For whether your ears are pierced or not, we're all going to hear better in the afterlife. In heaven, issues that we struggled to comprehend today, doctrines that dumbfounded us now are going to be perfectly explained to us by God himself. Well, this is a truth that we need to remember whenever we approach Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. For the doctrines of predestination and free will are indeed some thorny theology. They've been discussed and debated since the church was born. I'm sure complete comprehension won't be grasped this side of heaven. Here's where we need a healthy realization of our own limitations. In other words, a little humility will be helpful tonight. Romans chapters 1 through 8 deals with the principles of salvation. Beginning next week, Romans 12 through 16 is going to discuss the practicals of salvation. But in between the principles and the practicals, Romans 9 through 11 delves into a problem with salvation. You have our deliverance, you have our duty, but in between there's a dilemma that Paul sheds some light on. Romans 9 through 11 answers this question. Now that salvation has come to the Gentiles, what is God's attitude toward the Jews? Romans 9 is some pretty heady stuff. It's a collection of Paul's most intellectual arguments. That's why it's interesting that he begins by revealing his heart. Verse 1 I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Paul begins by describing how brokenhearted he is over the lostness of Israel. You know, unless you have family who don't know Jesus, it's difficult to grasp the depth of Paul's grief. You know, you share so much of life with your family members. Your heart aches when you know you're at odds on the most important issue of all, this is how Paul felt toward his fellow Hebrews. He's about to say some hard things to the Jews, so he wants them to know up front how much he loves them. The thought of his kinfolk burning in the flames of hell grieved him greatly. In fact, Paul makes a mind-boggling statement in verse three. He says, "For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren." My countrymen, according to the flesh. My, oh, my. Can you imagine saying that? The Greek word translated accursed is the word anathema, and it couldn't be stronger. It means to deliver a soul to eternal damnation. Paul is saying he's willing to go to hell if it meant the Jews could go to heaven. You know, you think of the secret service agent who is prepared to put his life on the line to protect the president. He's willing to take a bullet for the president. But that sacrifice is nothing compared to Paul's sacrifice. He was willing to forego not just life on earth, but his eternal life in order to save the Jews. It reminds me of two men. They were discussing their respective churches. The first guy said, he said, well, I hear you've got a new pastor over there. Why did you fire the old one? His friend replied, well, he spoke too much about hell. He says, well, what about the new pastor? What does he speak on? He said, well, he speaks on hell too. (laughs) Well, the guy was confused. He said, what's the difference if both men speak on hell? That's when his friend explained. He said, well, when the old pastor told folks they were going to hell, it sounded like he was glad. But when the new pastor tells people they're going to hell, it sounds like it's breaking his heart. Well, this was Pastor Paul. Paul was willing to go to hell if it meant the Jews could be saved. And so I ask us, why won't we walk next door? Why won't we take our coworker out to lunch in order to share with him our faith? Why won't we put a phone call in to a friend to invite someone to church? Realize, in the next 30 seconds, 39 people in this world are going to die in the next 30 seconds. Every hour, 5,000 people leave this world to meet their maker. And most of them step out into a Christless eternity. You know, that realization should bring a tear to our eye. It should cause a prayer. It should motivate us to share our faith. It's been said to love a thing means wanting it to live. Well, Paul had this great passion for the Jews. Hopefully, we have a passion for the lost people around us. But this passion was enhanced by the privileges God had given the Jews. In a spiritual sense, they had everything going for them. He says, these Hebrews who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God amen. Paul is recalling the amazing benefits that have been afforded the Jews. And the greatest of all was Jesus. He was born a Jew. You've heard the old saying, you can't pick your relatives (laughs) unless you're God. If you're God, you can pick your relatives. And of all the nations, God chose the Jews to be his relatives. In so many ways, the Hebrew people had been God's partner in salvation and yet tragically we're told in John 1 verse 11, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. This was a blown opportunity of mega proportions. You know, for two millennium, the Jews had occupied a special place in God's plan. That's why Paul's readers were puzzled as to why they weren't saved. You know, I would have answered their Questions by insisting that the Jews had a choice, and that they had chose to reject Jesus. But Paul surprises us; he takes a whole different tact. He says that what's happened to the Jews is a result of God's choice. Verse six. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, here's Paul's first point. The Jews had trusted their bloodline and their behavior to save them. But that alone had never been enough. A real relationship with God is the result of belief or faith. Not everyone with Jewish blood was a true Jew in the eyes of God. Verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But... In Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are, who, are, who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now here Paul's recounting Genesis. Remember, Abraham had two sons. Biologically, Ishmael was his son. But spiritually speaking, God never recognized Ishmael. In Genesis 22, verse 2, when God told Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Notice God called Isaac Abraham's only son. The true family of God was never just about bloodline. Neither was pedigree enough to make one right with God. And of course this shocked the Jews because they figured that as kids of Abraham they were automatically accepted by God. They were wrong. The other trait that Israel trusted in was their behavior, their bloodline and their behavior. You see, to a Jew, salvation was something due. It was a paycheck you earned through good deeds. This is the error that Paul now tackles in verse 10. And not only this, But when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Now notice this, Rebekah had twin boys. And while they were still in the womb, before either of them had attended church, or given an offering, or fed a poor person, or jumped off a stranger with a dead battery. I mean, before they did any good deed, God chose Jacob over Esau. He says, the older shall serve the younger. In fact, later in life, Jacob is going to swindle Esau. You remember the story. Jacob proved to be more diabolical than Esau. And yet God chose Jacob over his brother. Paul's point is it had nothing to do with their bloodline or their behavior, their pedigree or their performance. It was all predetermined by God. The boy's place in God's family was a matter of election or of God's choice. Verse 13 puts it, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And understand the figurative language here. This is a figure of speech. This is a hyperbole or an exaggeration. God certainly loved Esau as he loves us all. But his plans for Jacob made his plans for Esau look like hate. God certainly chose Jacob over Esau. Now here's the point. Prior to either child sliding down the birth canal before they either one of them lifted a hand to prove or disprove their worthiness, God elected Jacob and rejected Esau. God's choices were based neither on bloodline or behavior. And here's where it gets even stickier. Ultimately, neither were God's choices based on belief. For God chose Jacob over Esau in utero before they could work or even have faith. As Paul says in verse 11, it was done so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. In a sense, it was God's choice, not man's, that decides one's eternal destiny. God saves whom He chooses and He condemns whom He chooses. And after hearing that, you're going to relate to verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? I mean, this doesn't seem fair, does it? We should be the captain of our own fate. Is God some kind of tyrant? And notice how Paul answers this question. Certainly not. Now, especially in the United States, Americans value equal opportunity. Everyone should be free to make their own choice. Of course, we get this concept from the Bible. One of the ways that man was made in God's image was he was given the authority to choose his own destiny. The theologians say that man is a free moral agent. We're quick to defend our right to choose, and we should be, but what about God's right to choose? Have you ever thought about it? Doesn't God get a choice? Isn't salvation His to give? Why shouldn't God have the freedom to give salvation to whomever He pleases? He's God. Verse 15 elaborates, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In other words, it's all up to God who receives mercy and who doesn't. I'm afraid that because God has made salvation so simple and so accessible, we have assumed that it's our right. You know, we forget that after 6,000 years of sordid, fallen human history, God would be perfectly just to just throw us all in hell and start over. To me, it's not really surprising that God hated Esau. What's shocking here is that he loved Jacob. It's astonishing to me that God loves any of us for that matter. I once worked for a boss who on occasion would allow us to leave an hour early on Fridays and yet he'd still pay us for the whole day. But after a while, we started expecting to leave early every Friday. So whenever we had to work the whole day, we'd all start sucking sour grapes. Oh, this isn't fair. This is not right. We lost our appreciation for our boss's benevolence. We interpreted the boss's mercy as our right. Don't say it's not fair for God to save some and not others. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. We all deserve the flames of hell. The only reason any of us are forgiven is that God chooses to give us a gift that we don't deserve. We're all glad God has given us a choice, so why do we begrudge Him His? Verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Paul points to the Pharaoh of the Exodus as an example of a person God chose to reject. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 19, Who will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Paul anticipates a logical question, an objection here. How is it fair for God to harden a man's heart and then hold him accountable for that hardness? Of course, if you go back to Exodus chapter 8 and the story there of the Pharaoh, it tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God's sovereignty didn't override the Pharaoh's compliant and obedient heart. Not hardly. God stiffened a heart that was already committed to stubbornness. And you see, this is the argument that I would have emphasized if I had been writing Romans. Here is where I would have tried to balance out God's election with now man's responsibility. But not Paul. He keeps beating the drum of God's sovereignty. He says in verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? I mean, Paul is clear. The clay has no say. What right does the clay have to dictate orders to the potter? The clay has no authority, no say in the situation. The potter has complete mastery over the clay. Paul writes, What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now notice Paul isn't speaking here in absolutes. This is a what-if argument. Paul isn't saying this is how it actually works out. He's speaking hypothetically. He's saying what if, what if God created the lost Gentiles as whipping boys for the sole purpose of just showing off his wrath and sending them to hell? And then, what if God chose the Jews for the sole purpose of revealing His glory and sending them to heaven? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Not that He did, but what if? You see, even if that is how God drew it up, then so be it. He has that right. He's God, it's His prerogative. You see, God can populate heaven and hell however he chooses. And a finite man is not in a position to question or to criticize an infinite God. What if God took you, a lump of clay, and made you into an elegant set of fine china that was cherished for generations to come? What if? Or what if God took you a lump of clay and made you a target for a skeet shooting competition, a clay pigeon? You were made for the sole purpose of getting blown to smithereens just for the fun of it. What if? You see, either way, it's up to God. We have no right to question or criticize the Almighty. We're just the clay. You see, some of us have refused to let God be God. And here's my point. We are not going to fully appreciate God's salvation and His mercy toward us until we acknowledge His ultimate sovereignty. Now granted, such dominance would be scary for a lump of clay if it weren't for the potter's hands. For as our potter handles us, We can see something in his hands. We can see his scars. And it's because of those scars we know that we are more than just clay to our potter. God has purchased us with the blood of his only son. That means we're valuable to God. If God paid so much for us, he's not just going to waste our lives as as skeet for shooting practice. Whatever his plan for our life might be, it's going to be good. God loves us and our highest good is found in the center of his will. And so we can't be afraid of the potter, but we certainly need to acknowledge his sovereignty. So, what does the Bible teach in regards to our salvation? God's predestination? That my eternal destiny was decided by God before I was born, that it was all his choice? Or, does it teach man's free will? That every human being has the responsibility to accept or reject Jesus. It's all about our choice. Well, I believe the Bible teaches both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. That yes, God chose me. But it is also up to me to choose God. I believe both doctrines. In Romans 9, Paul has pounded away at predestination. But you'll, note, you'll see when we get there, in the very next chapter, the very next chapter, Romans 10, verse 13, he writes, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's free will. You see, I believe both doctrines because the Bible teaches them both. Yet here's the rub. How we reconcile these truths remains a mystery. You know, it's like me holding a quarter between you and I and asking you to describe what you see. And you say, oh, I see George Washington's head. And then you ask me, well, what do you see? And I say, I see an eagle with its wings spread. Now, both descriptions would seem irreconcilable. But the the truth is, is that we're looking at the same object just from two different angles. This is the case with salvation. You see, God commands us to choose. From our perspective, it's all up to us. It depends on our free will. But once we choose, we realize that before the world began, God predestined us to be saved. I heard of a wise old man. He heard his pastor teach on this doctrine of election. He made the comment afterwards. He says, long ago, I settled that issue. If God didn't choose me before I was born, I'm sure he would have seen nothing in me to choose afterwards. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about it. You know, someone has suggested that when we enter heaven, engraved on the gate will be the words, whosoever will may come. But then once we go through the gate and we look around at the backside of the gate, it'll say, chosen before the foundation of the world. I'll never forget coming home and finding a jar in the kitchen floor it was lying there and it had a lid on it and i and i saw the lid i read the label on the jar and this is what it said warning biological material teratogenic and mutagenic agents present and i'll never forget seeing that jar and that label and the lid laying there and thinking oh no my boys have finally done it they've killed us all they've been out in the woods And they found this bottle of poison and they brought it home. We're all contaminated now. I'll never forget that. I went into a panic. It didn't take long, though, for Kathy to calm my fears. The jar in the lid turned out to be the thermos that went with Nick's Jurassic Park lunchbox. The point is, things are not always as they seem. Hey, picture two ropes coming down out of the ceiling. Say we had a a tile ceiling here in the building. And picture two ropes coming down out of the tile. One rope goes up while the other rope comes down. The arrangement looks unrelated. Both ropes look like they're moving in opposite directions from each other. But what if we popped a few of the ceiling tiles and discovered that the two ropes were actually the same rope, just strung over a pulley? You see, I think this is what we're going to discover when we get to heaven. We assume that our free will and God's sovereignty are at odds with each other. In reality, I believe they're working hand in hand. There is no contradiction after all. A higher logic is in play, known only to God. But that higher logic is at work reconciling the the two truths together in our salvation. I love Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our problem is so often we try to reconcile what the Bible doesn't bother to reconcile. I I like the quote, try to explain the doctrine of election and you'll lose your mind, but try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. I believe the Bible teaches to what seem to be irreconcilable doctrines, and it does so for a reason. It's a reminder to us haughty humans that none of us know it all, especially when it comes to our salvation. You see, reconciliation is not our work. It's God's work. He's the one who works this miracle in our lives. Here's the first rule of theology. Never put a question mark where God has placed a period. Period. God doesn't always owe us an explanation. I'm sure you've heard the expression, inquiring minds want to know. But there comes a point when inquiring minds need to bow. Salvation is all about faith. Well, the question Paul's readers were asking was about the apparent change in the status of the Jews. The Jews had always been the heirs of salvation, but they weren't the people now getting saved. The Gentiles were embracing Jesus. And as a result, people had accused God of being an Indian giver. If God promised salvation to the Jews and they weren't saved, then how could the Gentiles be confident of God's promise? And to answer the question, Paul now brings up several Old Testament passages that had predicted this flip-flop, that salvation would one day come to the Gentiles and that judgment would come to the Jews. He begins by quoting Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. Now, you recall this bizarre story. Hosea, wow. God told the prophet to go out and marry a prostitute. Unbelievable. Hosea's marriage, though, was a symbol of God's relationship with Israel. For Israel had played the prostitute. She had been an unfaithful bride and had chased after idols. Hosea and the hooker, they named their third child Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And it was prophetic of Israel's status, of Israel's future plight, that God would withdraw from Israel his favored nation status. In In essence, the Hebrew nation was placed on suspension. And God signed a new player to take its place on the roster, the Gentiles. I will call them my people who were not my people. God adopted the Gentiles after the Jews had rejected Jesus. He goes on, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now this was important. God included the Gentiles into his family, but that didn't mean he was through with the Jew, not hardly. No way, Hosea, Uh, Hosea. One day the Jews in Israel will embrace Jesus as their Messiah. For the time being, they've been placed on suspension. But one day, those who are not my people shall be called sons of the living God again. Verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. And here Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 10. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. This is all predictive. This short work is predictive of the seven-year period known as great tribulation. God will pour out plagues and ravage the planet. He'll do so for two reasons. One, to punish the wicked, but also to purify the Jews. And here Isaiah is saying that the Jews who survived this great tribulation... He calls the remnant, and they're the ones that will be saved. So in the end, there will be a remnant of Jews who will be saved. And as Isaiah said before, and here again, he quotes Isaiah two more times in chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 13, verse 19. He says, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. God refuses to wipe out the Jews. He he provides a remnant. There is always a seed. In the end, many of the Jews will be saved. That's what he's saying. So is God through with the Jew? No, he's not. Not according to Isaiah and Hosea. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. How ironic. Imagine a football. It's thrown downfield. It bounces off its intended receiver into the hands of a teammate. This is the story of our salvation in a nutshell. You see, the Jews were the intended target for salvation. The Gentiles, they were just jogging downfield. The Jews were vying for the ball but the Gentiles were in the right place at the right time without doing much at all. They caught the carom and scored the touchdown. And yet if God is a perfect passer, why didn't the Jews make the catch? Verse 32, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. You see, the Jews tried to earn what could only be received by faith. The Gentiles had nothing but faith. They knew they were undeserving. They had no good works to point to. The Jews missed salvation because they wanted to buy it through their own goodness and good works, and it wasn't for sale. The Gentiles received it because they just bumped into it by faith. Chapter 9 ends, For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And here he quotes Psalm 118. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense." And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. It was predicted by the prophets that the Jews would stumble over their Messiah. You see, rather than see Jesus as the way, they saw him as in the way. He didn't fit their messianic stereotypes. He was a rock in their shoe rather than the rock on which they leaned. You see, they weren't willing to come to him by faith. Chapter 10 begins. Brethren. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now understand, at the time, the Jews were the most religious people on the planet. And yet, here Paul declares the Jews aren't saved. He's saying, my heart's desire is that they will be saved. That implies that they're not. Can you imagine? This is like saying that the Pope isn't saved. You know, the Jews were the most religious people on the planet. Yet Paul says they weren't saved. I- I've been to the Vatican there in Rome. It's a bastion of religion. 24 hours a day, liturgies are read and prayers are said. Candles and incense burn like a forest fire. Now whether the Pope is actually saved or not, that's between him and God. Yet Paul's point is that religion alone doesn't equal salvation. If it did, the Jews would have been saved, but they aren't. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. You know, Jerusalem is the only city on earth where riots erupt on the streets for violations of a holy day. You drive your car down the streets of some of the Jewish neighborhoods on the Sabbath and they'll throw rocks at you. Walk into an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood dressed immodestly and the residents will try to pummel you with stones. Oh, the problem with the Jews isn't a lack of zeal. They're zealous, all right. It's a lack of knowledge. He says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, the Jews want to please God, but they go about it the wrong way. He says, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. See, here's a truth you need to understand. If you want to go to God's heaven, you need to follow God's directions. Makes sense, doesn't it? And the path is not a self-righteousness. That was the path the Jews were traveling, but that's not God's path. The path that God deems for heaven is His righteousness. It's righteousness by faith, not by works. Not something we can manufacture, but it's His free gift. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. The law, in essence, required a flawless routine, a perfect 10. Is your life reflective of a perfect 10? Mine's not. I don't even get a 9.1. One slip, and you've broken the whole enchilada. You've violated the whole law. uh, Moses says, here's the problem with living under the law of Moses. You can keep all of the commandments some of the time, or you can keep some of the commandments all of the time, but no one can keep all of the commandments all of the time. You remember the old Smith Barney commercials? The, The old curmudgeon comes on and he says in kind of a haughty way, he says, We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. (laughs) That's how the Jews saw salvation. That was their view of righteousness. They tried to earn it, but it wasn't for sale. It was God's free gift. He says, but the righteousness of faith, that which gets you to heaven, it speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, it's not about you trying to coax Christ, you know, to come to you. It's not, it's not about you trying to do something that merits God's attention. You know, Americans, we get confused. Sometimes we believe that hard work and determination are omnipotent, that anything can be accomplished. If you just work hard enough, I mean, you can start out as a community organizer, and if you work hard enough, you can become president. That's kind of how we view things. Hard work may get you places on earth, but it won't get you anywhere with God. Paul is saying, don't think you can coax God down from heaven with your good works. Don't think you can conjure him up with some mystical technique. You know, you've met people who who are into the so-called deep things. They wear crystals and they chant mantras and they've got all kinds of metaphysical feelers out. They're always looking for God. I've got a friend of mine. It's so sad. You see, he isn't content with Christianity. He's always exploring every new spiritual novelty that comes down the pike. Last time I talked to him, he was into the Jewish Kabbalah. And I wrote him a letter not too long ago. And this is what I wrote him. I said, the deepest thought I've ever had is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. Or the Bible tells me so. That's deep. That's truth. That's reality. Paul is saying connecting with God isn't the result of earning His divine favor, nor is it the result of learning some divine formula. God has made it so much simpler. Listen to this, verse 8. But what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, God is as near to you as the tip of your tongue. Salvation is not a reward to which we aspire. It's not a secret we try to acquire. It's a free gift we simply desire. All you have to do is have faith enough to ask. Salvation is as far away from you as the tip of your tongue. So that... If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, salvation isn't you building up some portfolio of good works, nor is it you wielding some mystical power. It's simply yielding control of your life to Jesus. It's not flexing my muscles or straining my brain. It's bending my knee and pledging my allegiance. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, we can be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Real faith starts in the heart, but then it comes out of the mouth. Faith includes both an inner pledge and an outer witness. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. In other words, everyone gets saved the exact same way. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember, the emphasis in chapter 9 was God's sovereignty and salvation. It's all up to Him. But now in chapter 10, it's all up to us. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's all about our choice. Here in Romans, in back-to-back chapters, the Bible teaches both perspectives as it does throughout the book. It's amazing how two doctrines, though so irreconcilable in theory, work so well in practice. Say someone complains, this isn't fair. God didn't choose me. You know what I'm going to reply? I'm going to say, well, how do you know? Well, I'm not a Christian. Well, why aren't you a Christian? The Bible says, whosoever will may come. Yes, but I'm not sure I want to come. Well, then maybe you weren't chosen. But don't blame God for it. It was your choice. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't blame your unwillingness on God. God is willing. Henry Ward Beecher used to say, The elect... Are the whosoever will, and the non elect are the whosoever won't. I think that sum, sums it up pretty well. The first half of chapter 10 now speaks of the simplicity of salvation. The second half, though, speaks of the seriousness of evangelization. God has made salvation simple and attainable and available, it's just on the tip of your tongue. But now it's our job to spread the good news he makes his point with a string of four rhetorical questions beginning here in verse 14. He says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Before a truth is believed, it has to be received. But to be received, it has to be delivered. And to be delivered... There has to be a deliverer. Guys, this is why your silent witness, sorry, but it's not enough. It's not enough. You can't just say, well, people don't like to be preached at. I just let my life speak for itself. That's not enough. It is certainly vital that we live an attractive life. But unless at some point we offer a verbal explanation, how will the people know what makes us tick? You see, lost people need a preacher, Paul says. And for some people, you're it. You're their preacher. It's been said, too many Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth. Recall Romans chapter 2. Remember we were taught that we're all going to be judged by the light we've received. That might lead you to think, well, why should we take the gospel to the pygmy in Africa and risk his rejection of it? If he's not accountable for what he doesn't know, ignorance is bliss. Here's the problem with that thinking. Nobody faithfully lives up to the truth they've known. Think about it. Has the pygmy ever violated his conscience? Has he ever done an evil deed? I'm sure he has. Hey, God may save the repentant, trusting, seeking pagan, but how many repentant pagans do you know? I mean, when a pygmy invites you over for dinner, he's not necessarily being nice. He may have you on the menu. Ignorance is not bliss. Here's the point. Everybody needs salvation. Everybody needs forgiveness and the transformation that comes with it. And it is only available through Jesus. That's why, yes, that pygmy in Africa needs our witness. Yes, your neighbors and friends need your witness. Yes, we need to speak up and preach the gospel because without it, a man can't be saved. Paul says in verse 15, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, on occasion, somebody will compliment me on my dashingly handsome features they'll make note of my muscular physique or you know maybe my movie star eyes or they'll admire my chin both of them in fact but you know no one has ever commented about my feet only god only god praises our feet did you know that feet are god's favorite human feature when he sees a pair of feet that carry the gospel he thinks how beautiful you know, all husbands admire their wives, and Jesus is no exception. The bridegroom looks at his bride, and he thinks she's beautiful. But you know what grabs his attention? It's not her hair or face or her figure. It's her feet that carry the gospel. Jesus says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. And then verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Notice this. Faith is the result of what? It's the result of hearing the Word of God. There are all kinds of shortcuts to spiritual growth. You can go to emotionally charged meetings, and you can hear soul-stirring music and attention-grabbing gimmicks and spine-tingling experiences, But understand, all those shortcuts lead to dead ends. Jeremiah spoke to the issue in chapter 23, verse 28. He said, The prophet who has a dream, Oh, let him dream. Let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. For what is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? In other words, there are no substitutes to God's Word. It's the wheat compared to the chaff. Everything else we think we need to grow our faith, it's the chaff. The wheat, the bread of life, the sustenance that our faith needs to grow is the Word of the living God. D.L. Moody said he spent years praying for God to increase his faith. But his prayers were all in vain. Until one day, he recalled Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Moody said, he got up off his knees, he opened his Bible, he began to read it, and he said faith had been growing ever since. Faith, if you want a strong faith, feed it on God's word. Verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. And next week, we're going to discuss this subject, the topic of jealousy evangelism. That's how God worked in Israel. He made them jealous of the Gentiles who had received salvation. But Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 1 and 2, is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. In other words, the Gentiles caught the carom. When the ball knocked off of the Jews, they caught it and ran and scored. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The Jews had rejected God's pleadings. They turned their back on him. So, is God through with the Jew? Well, we'll answer that question in chapter 11. And that's where we'll stop tonight. Father, we thank you for your word tonight and for your love for us. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to digest the things we've heard tonight. May it grow our faith. May it make us strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.